growing. I felt like lying down by the side of the trail and remembering it all. The woods do that to you. Jack Kerouac. A sweaty man ran towards me, suffering the exertions of his morning run. This was the first grid square I'd been to that was predominantly residential. I stepped aside on the church path to let him pass, but he just touched the trunk of the yew tree in front of me and ran back the way he'd come. The tree must have been his regular turnaround spot. I wondered if he gave it any thought or if he was focusing more on his split times and Strava ranking. If I was the sort of man who had a top 10 ranking of trees in my head, and I am that sort, then I'd rank the yew far down the list. They look gloomy, suck away sunshine and are hard to climb. Perhaps I'm being unfair. Yews live for an impressively long time. The Fortingall yew in Perthshire is 2,000 years old and the Definog yew in Powys may be 3,000 years older than that. They are among the oldest living things in Europe, but have less legal protection than half a million of our listed structures, which include a few bus stops and skate parks. Britain has the most yews over 500 years old in Europe. We can't often make that sort of claim. The ancient yew group has identified well over a thousand here. Compare that with France's paltry 77 or Spain and Germany's risable for each. Long before the development of the Christian tradition of planting yew trees in graveyards, the tree was sacred to druids. They revered its longevity and powers of regeneration. For when its branches drooped the ground, they can themselves take root and form new trunks. The yew came to represent both death and resurrection, connected perhaps to the notorious toxicity of the yew's needles. The deadly brew that Macbeth's witches concocted included slips of yew silvered in the moon's eclipse. Medieval longbows were also made from yew and were used with shivering effectiveness in the Hundred Years' War, raining down ten aimed shots per minute upon their foes. Closing the church gate behind me, I headed to the village green, where I came across the usual war memorial for the usual dozens of young men from this village killed in the First World War. Abbott, Ashdown, Baldwin, Ballard, I read. Beale, Beckett, Blunden. I wondered if there was a single community on my map without such a poignant memorial. It seemed unlikely, sadly. Villages where all residents survived the First World War are known as thankful villages, and there are only 53 in England and Wales, out of tens of thousands. France has just one such thankful village, Thierville in Upper Normandy. I was feeling a little melancholy after the graveyard and the memorial, but the bus shelter cheered me up. Someone had donated a pile of books to help pass the time waiting for the hopelessly infrequent bus service, with rural public transport being virtually non-existent these days. I like a pop-up library. Opposite the shelter was a pub and a charming timber-framed home, a yeoman's hall dating from the 15th century, with high ceilings and a hearth in the centre of a large dining hall. 
it would have been built by a successful farmer who owned his own land, known as a yeoman. What would he have made of the food on offer up the street from his house today? The Indian takeaways, tiffin box meal deals seemed a long way from medieval pottage, a thick stew made by boiling vegetables, grains and any available meat or fish. Tiffin boxes are a stack of three or four metal containers, like a fancy packed lunch box, popular in India, though I suspect this takeaway would use the usual disposable plastic tubs. Mumbai has an industry of Daba Wallas, workers who transport more than 130,000 of these tiffin lunchboxes across the city every working day, because Indians won't put up with a soggy cling-filmed cheese sandwich in the office. Every morning, a Daba Walla collects a tiffin box, known as a Daba, filled with fresh food from the customer's home in the suburbs, and takes it to the local railway station for delivery into the city. There, the daba is handed to another worker who delivers it to the correct office at lunchtime. In the afternoon, the process runs in reverse, returning the daba to the customer's house so they don't have to carry their own lunchbox home. This 130-year-old business has become famous for its outstanding accuracy. What makes the system more impressive than simply its scale and efficiency and fascinating to distribution companies such as FedEx, is that the semi-literate Daba Wallers accomplish these incredible logistics feats with no phones or computers. From the village green with its old church, traditional pub and solid homes, I moved outwards through rings of newer housing estates, built one by one over the past decades, each in a distinct style. I passed maisonettes, blocks of flats, cookie-cutter family homes, a house-proud garden next to a tangle of weeds with an old car up on bricks, and the home of Sheila and Malk, whose names were carved proudly on a wooden arch in the small but flower-filled garden of their terraced bungalow. A happy home, I guessed. These residential rings around the old village had swollen over time, like galls on an oak tree. I enjoyed ambling through the different areas and wondering at the variety of families and lives and stories there. I felt a sense of sonder. This is a German word meaning special, but it is gradually being absorbed into English. The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows website, which coins and defines neologisms for emotions that do not yet have a specific term, defines sonder as a noun meaning the realisation that each random passerby is living a life as vivid and complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries and inherited craziness. Many streets were named after birds, flowers and trees, a reminder that not so long ago all this was countryside. Today, I watched a man mowing his lawn five weeks before Christmas, shaving as much nature as possible from his personal square of greenery. Incongruous among all the new homes was a tiny lodge house, an old single-storey sandstone building with two windows, a door between them and a triangular roof. Once upon a time, it stood at the gates of the long driveway to a Tudor manor house, the grounds of which were now the focus of arguments over 400 proposed new houses. 
As I prepared to take a photo, a white van braked hard on the road. Don't take effing photos, shouted the driver. Why not? I asked. Because it's my house. <laughs> he lied, cackled and roared off with a wheel spin. I shrugged and took my photo. Much of this grid square was covered with orchards belonging to a fruit research station, kept behind fences out of concerns for biosecurity. Growing an apple tree isn't as simple as just spitting out a pip. You often end up with a crabapple tree if you plant an apple seed. Though that curmudgeonly tough guy Thoreau claimed to prefer wild apples of spirited flavour, even he had to admit that sometimes they were sour enough to set a squirrel's teeth on edge and make a jay scream. Modern apples are hybrids of wild apples, facilitated by trade along the Silk Road over many centuries. Indeed, the etymology of Almaty in Kazakhstan may derive from a phrase meaning father of apples. Apples evolved to tempt large animals to eat them, so the apple you enjoy for lunch, after your soggy cheese sandwich, came about through the efforts of extinct megafaunal herbivores, Silk Road merchants, plus the boffins hard at work in my grid square. The apples we eat today are cloned by grafting, and this research station produces root stocks that are used in 90% of Europe's orchards. I sat outside the orchard and ate my Ecuadorian banana, looking up at a silver maple tree draped with large clumps of mistletoe. Cultivated apple is mistletoe's favourite host, and it's spreading eastwards through Britain, perhaps because more black caps now spend the winter here rather than migrating to warmer climes. The birds eat the white berry flesh, then wipe their beaks on branches to leave behind the seed. This helps the mistletoe to germinate and take hold on new trees. The Christmas tradition of kissing under sprigs of mistletoe may have originated with Celtic druids almost 2,000 years ago. The plant was a sacred symbol of life as it blossomed even in the bleak midwinter and was used on both humans and animals to restore fertility. However, the first record of mistletoe kisses comes only from a song published in 1784. The original custom decreed that you had to pick a berry from the sprig before taking your kiss. Once the berries were all plucked, that was the end of the canoodling. As the research orchards were off-limits, there wasn't much else to investigate. I was delighted to see my first field fairs of the season, and I added large fries to my growing menu of McDonald's litter. I spotted the first fish in my map too, a lively school of dace sheltering under a bridge in a stream. Small brown trout also nosed into the current, hovering with a gentle flickering of their tails, camouflaged with golden flanks and dark spots. The brown trout is a fierce predator of smaller fish and insects. It cheered me after the day's convenience stores filled with packaged food and orderly orchards to know that, even here, I was in the company of fierce predators. Nature is all around us. We are in nature. We are nature.